You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. You know that sound. It's 8 o'clock, and we're heading around the side of the yard into the outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the House, and it is the fifth Saturday of the month. What does that mean? The first Saturday of the month in this hour, we talk with the Arizona Farm Bureau, all things agricultural. Second Saturday of the month, we talk with Arborist and Arboriculture with John Eisenhower. Third Saturday, we talk landscape gardening uh, lawns with Jay Harper. Fourth hour, we talk urban farming with Greg Peterson. So what do we do with the fifth hour, with the fifth Saturday? We get these four, occasionally five times a year on leap years, and we always do something extremely special, and we brought in a special guest that really, you've taken all four of those things, agricultural, arboriculture, landscape, and urban farming, and combine them into your own unique term. Did, did you come up with this term? Agriscaping, yes, I absolutely came up with that term. It was uh, has everything to do with what you're describing. We had to figure a word that we could easily create and communicate the message of what we do. Well, Justin Rahner of Agriscaping Edible, Elegant Edible Landscape. Brilliant name. Well, thanks. I, as soon as I saw that, I thought, one more idea. I should have thought of first. <laughs> <laughs> we should have been talking back then, I guess, Romy. <laughs> well, no, congratulations. Uh, so, agriscaping, tell it... Tell us everything that means in your words, other than elegant, edible landscape. Well, to me, it means bringing together the best of productive agriculture with the best of ornamental landscaping and doing it one yard at a time, you know, being able to recognize that a small scape can be very productive and still be beautiful. You know, your HOA doesn't have to get on your case, you know, because you got food growing in your front yard. And that's where we started. We started because I had to buy a house on 9-11. Uh, and and on that day, all of a sudden, my life didn't feel safe, and I needed to be able to grow my own food, and uh, and I had to grow it in a very strict HOA and find a way to do it so my neighbors and everybody didn't get mad at me, and uh, and that's kind of where it grew out of. It grew out of a necessity that I had to make sure it looked pretty, and it's turned into what it is today. That's very interesting. Uh, Jerry Colangelo, I had a line I'll, I'll always remember when I heard him speak once that the, there's opportunity in adversity. So. You know, as horrible of a tragedy as 9-11 was, it is what it is. It happened. This concept has grown out of that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm very appreciative of that time. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible time, but it, it brought out a lot of greatness in people. And I think it continues to evolve even to this day, just with all of us and the memories we have about that time and the shifts we make to make a change in our life or our landscapes. I mean, it's, it's a memory we're able to create every day. How much space do I need to agriscape? You got a square foot, you got a pot, you can agriscape. Have you, have you seen those little fairy gardens people are making? You can make it edible, you know? So you don't need a lot of space, almost nothing. And and still make a beautiful space that can produce a lot of food for you. And for us, I guess the really question comes down to how much of it do you want to eat? And how much space do you need for you and your family? And I hear agriscaping, and I think, so you're taking your landscape and you're making agriculture, and this becomes a money generator. It certainly can be. And, and I guess uh, and it comes down to when we work with a client, we'll come over to the place and we'll do a, 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 pro, a production or productivity assessment. And we'll really find out, well, what's the production that the family would need to accommodate all their fresh food needs? Can mm-hmm. we put it into their landscape? If so, how? You know, what layers are we going to be doing? Do we have to do vertical gardening or we're going to have to go inside and do aquaponics and actually bring in fish and, and do some crazy stuff like that, you know? And, you know, there's 
13 squares up on top of that roof. <laughs> exactly. There we go. And so where are we going to have to put it in order to produce for them? Or is there ample space that we can produce for themselves and beyond? And is it something we can integrate in the local food economy and really make a moneymaker for them? Is it something that they could retire on, as we've had a couple of clients do? They just retire on their yard. And, you know, we had a gal if, that, yeah. yeah, it was a quarter acre. She retired off of that. Your home paid off. Yeah. Your car's paid off. Right. Uh, all you have is your living expenses, your utility bills, and your property tax. You know, you, that could be a very manageable number that you could easily overproduce on, on a quarter acre. Right. I mean, the numbers we like to tell people, give them a ballpark. If they're looking at the square footage, they want to commit to an agriscape. Our average right now is $7.82 per square foot. Okay, hang on. Per Seven. year. Yeah, write that down. Seven. Seven dollars and eighty-two cents. Seven eighty-two per square per foot. Per square foot per year. Now that's gonna be basically your gross. That's been our experience working through a, a sister company we helped we helped found called Utopian Harvest, who helps integrate that in a consignment Utopian fashion. Utopian Harvest. Like Another that. great name. <laughs> So that's a great organization. Uh, it was a company that was donated to us by the, the grad student that developed it. We were, I was on her board. It was kind of a cool little story that came with that. But it, it's a way to bring that local harvest into the community and do it in that, you know, accommodating all the food safety laws and all that other stuff to make sure it's done right. But uh, a way to make some money off of that backyard produce. Now, 782 per square foot, and this homeowner was on a quarter acre. Now, right. granted, not every single square foot, you still got your house, your driveway, not every square foot of this quarter acre was producing something. Right. So you but figure in 30%. 30%. So let's look at 30% on that. Okay. So of a, there's 43, just over 43,000 square feet per acre. Mm -hmm. So a quarter of that, we're down to just under 11,000. And you say a third of that? Yep. A third of that. So let's go off of 3,000. I'll round it down just a little bit because, um, this is still going to be a significant number. Yeah. So 30000 times 782, and that shoots out $23,000. There you go. I'm pretty sure as, as high as my utility bills are right now, and uh, but I know my utility bills with tax without even having to go look it up is under that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at it, you break that down on the month, you got about 1000 bucks a month you got to work with, and, and that's the gross on it, right? And so if you're doing all the work, that's the money you get back. You got food that you can then integrate. She ended up, this particular guy I'm thinking of right now who did it on that quarter acre, she ended up buying the neighboring house, knocked down the walls. She rented out the house, <laughs> but then did the landscaping, you know, agriscaping in the backyard, you know. And so it's a really cool thing that you can do with that kind of stuff. I mean, we've got restaurant gardens that we're producing stuff for these restaurants that they never had before. I mean, we've got subdivisions we're now starting to work on that the whole subdivision is integrating the agriscaping principle into that and creating their own internal co-ops. You know, 40 houses all working together, growing food. And there was something about just cultivating the land. I mean, this is all the reasons I moved on to a large property lot was to just be able to work the land. There's something so rewarding in that to me. Yeah. But taking, you took that and brought it to the next level. It was, it, for me, it was just a way to decompress. Radio, it's not like you find one out in the country. Very, I mean, there's, it's got to have an established metropolitan area. You know, we're right in the mm -hmm. middle of a big city we're broadcasting out of today. You know, even out of Wickenburg, you know, you're still, you're, you're, you're in the office building. You're in a building, you're, you're, you're tied to these structures. And for me, it was just a way to get back to what I enjoy and force me outside. This brings it to a whole new level and, and, and possibility. 
Exactly, and I think that's that's the cool part about it too. And with the 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 population growing in more condensed spaces, it's like our food just keeps traveling from further and further away. And so we've got more and more travel that our food is taking. I mean, the average distance I think right now in Arizona that food travels is around fifteen hundred miles, and this is fresh food. So it's like, how how fresh do you feel after traveling even five hundred miles? <laughs> you know, and this is going fifteen hundred. We call it fresh food. So we've we've got a food shortage that's also kind of on the horizon. That this is also trying to help accommodate and and replace. You know, get rid of some of these food deserts, especially the fresh food deserts in downtowns and stuff like that. And when you're take you're talking fifteen hundred miles. You know, a lot of those yeah. things are just we can't grow them here. We can grow a lot. And the reason we did landscaping in September, we've spent the whole month talking about it, is because this is, you've heard us say it all month long, the premier time for planting. Yeah. But there's still things you can't, I mean, uh, avocado, pineapple, I mean, coconuts, those three things right there by themselves are easily well over your 1,500 mile. Well, maybe not avocado, but, you know, coconut, pineapple, you're well over your 1,500 mark. And you're not even starting your journey yet. <laughs> right. Well, and out of those names, the only one I haven't been able to figure out here in Arizona is the coconut. The coconut. But I do have one growing in my yard right now, but he's only about three feet tall, so <laughs> it's, it's not exactly going to get there very soon. And when you say in your yard, so this this is yeah. a couple years of microclimates and developing. It's Correct. not something that you could just say, hey, here's what I did for the pineapple. You can plant it today. Well, no, you've got to get this microclimate, and you've got to get this kind of shade. I mean, it probably would take a little bit of development it takes a little bit of development some intention intentionality you know i mean we design with the microclimates all in mind so our, our certified designers literally will make sure that they can design and allocate the space in the way that allows you to grow the things you want to grow and that it's a design science i mean we've got to design these things to get them to work as efficiently as efficiently as they do we have do-it-yourself classes but when it all comes down to it even the do-it-yourselfer needs to go through that design process and really understand what they've got on their on their site to get the microclimates right to get the right plant in the right microclimate at the right time. Because just like right now, it's like here we are jumping into October, and it's an awesome time to be planting just about everything, especially tropicals, you know, to give them the time. But only if you put it in the right spot. You put it in the wrong spot, it's going to die this winter. You put it in the right spot, it's going to thrive this winter, and it's going to thrive even more the coming summer. But you got to get in the right spot. And I'm going to stay high-centered on this pineapple because looking at this landscape as a business mindset and agriscaping, there's always risk involved. Right. How much square foot does this pineapple take up that you're putting a risk on and how many years before you get produce like a pecan, seven to ten years they yeah. say before you expect production. So you've got a time investment before you start seeing that return. What's your what's your if if this doesn't work, how many years and how many square foot are you out? <laughs> Well, with a pineapple, it's kind of like bananas. It's about an 18-month turnaround to get the pineapple to grow. And you basically just get one pineapple off of that one initial plant that you plant. And then it puts out pups all around that. And so you want to commit at least 24 months to give it time to develop that as well as the root system to get it all to work right. And, uh, and the amount of square footage is only about two square feet total. And we like to layer it so we'll have a couple different things growing in that same space. So we might have a banana, a pineapple, and some, you know, some lower ground cover all in the same spot. And how many square feet? So really just uh, if I have a two by two, so I guess that ends up being four square feet. So four square feet with your 782 equation on a two-year time, you're out 70 bucks if this doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. And you got to be allocating the time. See, and that's an average because the reality is we can do $22, $24 per square foot depending on what we're growing in that spot. But when we average it over everything else... People like growing a lot more fruit trees. It's going to end up leaning the other direction. And My season times. Yeah, your and seasons. 10. Okay. Exactly. 
And but you know, I usually I average about ten in my yard just to make sure I got it dialed in. All right, we're talking agriscaping, a concept developed by Justin Rahner here with his uh, company, Edible Landscape. You're out of the Mesa Gilbert Chandler area, Southeast Valley. We've got certified people all around the valley. Oh, we'll talk about that after this. <laughs> Welcome back to Rosie on the House. If you missed the first segment, we're talking agriscaping with Justin Rahner here in the. Uh, so you said you've got certified people everywhere. I alluded to the Southeast Valley, but you said you have certified people. Are those people that work for you? Those people that you've trained to do this? These are guys that we've trained to do this, and we have regular contact with them every week. They, they we have uh, big Q and As that we do with our, our certified, and they're all licensed professionals that uh, are out there doing what they've been doing for years. We go through a screening process, similar to what you guys do. You know, with Rosie on the house, making sure that you got the right people. These people are outstanding installers when it comes to landscaping. And then they've gone through a specific training, specific for agriscaping, that we can send out to your house and actually get that done. We also have educators within the system, too, that help on the do-it-yourself side so that wherever you're at in the valley, we've got, we've got someone that you can connect with and really get that heart and feel for how your yard's going to work best to grow food for you in an elegant way. And that training others is always a big aspect of what we look for when we're looking for the right people. If somebody's not willing to train and teach others, they don't have the concept. You know, there's so many people here, I can't possibly serve them all, but I believe in this mission enough. The only way we're going to accomplish it, make a dent, is if we train others to be able to do this as well. So the compounding effect starts to snowball a lot more than just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm nine weeks out. I'll get to you when I can. And I'm the only one that can do this right. So yeah. you're just going to have to wait for me. You know, that's, that's not the mindset we're looking for. That's right. And there's only one of me and I don't want that to be the case. You know, I can't be you out there every time. You got kids and family, yeah, I'm exactly. sure, of your own. <laughs> right. I want to be in my own garden, too, right? It's so it's it's important. And we knew that that was important years ago when we started expanding things and recognizing that we need to create a good check and balance system. We tried to get the USGBC to do it. I mean, they had me come in and speak a number of times. But uh, when it all came down to it, they said, you know, you know it better than we do. You know, we can't throw that into a lead thing, but we're going to start adding some new stuff. And we'd, we'd love to to see this happen. So do it. And we'll bless you. And that's kind of where it's been with them. Now, when we talk gardening, and I'm going to go specifically just to vegetable gardening, mm-hmm. we always talk about the need for a a success plant. You've got to have something that keeps your interest. You know, radishes, okra, two things that are pretty hard to not get high-yield production out of. Um, what are, and, and when we're talking 782 and average, what are your high producers that throw up that average? Well, a lot of it, it's, it's the greens. I mean, if we want to throw up the average, we're going to be putting in uh, even microgreens. I mean, if you can do it inside, that's a big cash crop. I mean, that's something you can just turn over every two weeks. You can, you can harvest it. It regrows, harvest it, regrows. Cash crop. I mean, just like- So are do- you doing those in tower gardens? Or are you doing those in uh, container gardens? What- We've done them in a variety of different places, really to fit the design for the client and also the microclimates available to it. So it's, it's hard to like pinpoint exactly one way, but we'll do them in aquaponics, we'll do them in hydroponics, we'll do them in wall gardens with tiered wall gardens, kind of like the Flower Street Urban Gardens, if you've seen those on 44th Street. You know, he's one of our certified guys. He's a certified educator through Magerscaping. Hang on, hang on. A- Alex, hang on. His cousin's in our rodeo association. <laughs> yeah. Alex uh, Billingsley. Billingsley. There oh, you go. That's big rodeo guy. name. Yeah. And he went the garden side, which is fine. Yeah. And he was one that was on here, I don't know, four or five years ago, and he was also one of those that I saw that said, gosh darn it, yep. You thought of something I should have. <laughs> yeah, we love Alex. Alex is a great guy. Does a great work. I mean, his his product that he puts out is it's awesome. It's a great it's a great thing. Cool. Well, I'm, that's cool. He's one of y'all certified installers. Yeah. Uh, so high producers greens inside. What about outsides? Uh, I always 
think of uh, I love the orchard melon combos. Yeah, those are some great ways to do that. I mean, layering is a key component. I mean, we usually get three layers. We'll have a tree layer, we got a bush layer, and then we've got that ground cover layer. And that ground cover layer is a lot of that annual stuff that you can just rotate, use about every 50 to 60 days. And so we can get a, a, a high amount of yield because we've got the, the canopy layer with all of our citrus stuff. I mean, you can do strawberries underneath citrus to get that to work. There's things like herbs, like yerba manza. That's a really cool one that goes under citrus well. You know, there's a lot of other different things that you can create those layers, creating multiple revenue streams off of different plants. And then when you design it in such a way that it's all easily harvestable within an arm's reach, you don't have to go stepping into it. You don't need a bunch of big equipment. Now we're doing agriculture in a way that agriculture started. You know, it's it's stuff that's very layered. It's companion planting. We don't have to worry about a lot of bugs and pests and all that kind of stuff because we got the right plant companioned with something that then inhibits the major pests that we would otherwise have. And that's where it gets into the science. That's when it gets like it blows your mind. And we had to build some technology to help support all the, the diversity that we have in one landscape in order to make this all work correctly. Because most people, they're monoculturing because that's easier. You know, you only have one thing to think about. And I can't remember the exact name. I think it's just called uh, fries and ketchup. Have you seen that plant? It was in one of the uh, seed catalogs I get, and they cross bred the seed because the tomato and potato are in the same family so it's a plant that grows both uh on the rootstock potatoes and on the sprout stock tomatoes it does same family <laughs> i mean it's the same family but those are actually grafted they're like 36 bucks for one of those plants i think is what it costs to get some of those things is that what they get for yeah <laughs> it's it's a grafted potato onto a tomato plant and so they got the right variety so that you get the tomatoes on the top and you get the party down below you know it's like you're gonna both. companion planting <laughs> companion planting that's in the to the nth degree right there. have you ever played with one of those out of curiosity i have not personally but that's one it's, that i remember it popped up in one of our uh, one of our lists of stuff and i was looking at that and i'm going now that could be interesting Interesting. But that's pretty expensive. I don't think I can get my yield return just because of the outlay I'm going to have to get the plant. My block on that has been something I learned um, from Jay Harper where don't plant a cocktail tree because what happens is one, it always ends up being stronger than the other. You've oh, yeah. got your rootstock and then you may have a lime, a lemon, and an orange. One of those or two of those are going to be predominant and one's going to be weak. If you want that type of variety out of a plant, put three individual plants in the same plant hole and let it grow from there instead of trying to graft it all into one. So that had always kind of kept me from playing with multi-grafted type uh, plants. Yep, I'm with you on that too. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up with this really weird-shaped tree because of that same issue. So talking agriscaping with Justin Rahner here at Rosie on the House. Now, with a new concept like this, we've got talking points that we're, we're not even up to speed on. We're, we're already like behind on our talking points on where we needed to be. But So there's a likelihood we may not get to calls. You have a quick question, text it to 411-923 or send an email to info at rosyonthehouse.com. Justin Rohner, when we're talking on your companion planting and eliminating the insects, that was one of my questions. How are you doing insect and weed control? Because... In an agriscape situation, I'm sure a lot of your guys are pretty purist, pretty organic. I mean, their their concept of weed control is, you know, the good old-fashioned hula ho. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, with weed control, we, we usually eliminate that by just the density at which we plant. 
you know, and how we integrate hardscapes into the landscape as well, you know, integrating pathways and seat walls and stuff like that. And then because it's so dense, there's really no room for anything. When we grow with starts, usually we don't do seeds. And so that's another thing on how you can increase your rotation. See, a normal rotation in an in a agricultural standing when you're doing seeds is you got maybe five seasons per year. But we can increase and add two more by just doing the transplants. And so we'll transplant them at about a four-week mark, four to eight-week mark, already into their growing cycle. And then that increases our yields again by just simply how we do those rotations. Interesting. So are you doing your own starch then somewhere in the laundry room or a pantry or somewhere else, or you just frequent the nursery that much? Well, we often do it. We recommend if they're going to do it and want to make it be profitable. It's like a, like what Cecilia would do. She's growing her own starts in a little greenhouse or inside her house during the wintertime, you know, or in the summertime. You know, it's 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 doing a protected space, learning how to do that, do it efficiently. That's what we teach in our online mastery program is teaching them how to grow stuff indoors for themselves. So they have really cheap 50 cent, you know, a start kind of thing. So if you got 50 cent to start, you know that you're going to end up being able to sell per square foot at 782, you know, you got a good investment here. And then you can get the rotation working. And then if you know you can add an extra two seasons, that also kind of justifies the expense of even getting those. So when we're buying from a, a nursery, we're always looking for the six packs. That's what I like looking for. Six packs or I'm looking no for- No one-offs. <laughs> yeah, no one-offs. No, usually not the four inch, unless we're working with herbs that have a higher yield per square foot because of the, the nature of the, the, you know, the, the veg or the herb that we're working with. Or the types of herbs that sometimes, or the four inch pots that they'll actually have multiples all growing in one little pot. And so I can divide out even a watermelon that's got four different watermelons all growing or four squashes, which I would probably cut them off anyway. But now I can just divide those and actually plant them carefully into my landscape. And now I get more bang for my buck. And then planting those again, getting better seasonality with it when I can do the, the starts rather than seeds, then uh, that's one of the other ways to just increase that. And again, the densities, keeping the densities high. So I might not even be done harvesting all my sweet potatoes and I got those vines out there and then I'm going to be transplanting in between them. I'm putting in some other things like my pumpkins or I'm putting in some stuff for the winter. I'm putting in my kale starts right in between those things because the, the sweet potato vine are shallow enough that I can still plant those in there. And now I'm creating a rotation and I haven't even expired my previous harvest just yet. Or I got watermelon plants right now. You know, they're still hanging on, you know, and those <laughs> watermelon plants are still hanging on, still growing some cool stuff for us. And I'm growing kale right in between them, you know, heading to the next season. Very interesting. So that plant density takes care of your weed yep. in, in a lot of cases. What about insect? Well, with insect, when you got the right companion plants, like in the summertime, we're doing a lot of marigolds. Marigolds like to deter a lot of pests. You know, in the wintertime, we start throwing in more mint. We put in a lot of alums, the onions, uh, society garlics, you know, a lot of things like that that actually work really good in deterring pests, especially the bigger ones like rabbits. You know, I mean, if you're working around in the front yards and stuff like that, there's ways to design it and allocate your space with the right plantings to be a natural deterrent from any of those crazy pests. And then you know, we'll, we'll give some pests actually a, a nice smorgasbord of things that they would rather eat, like clover, you know, for the rabbits. We'll give them a little clover space. We'll actually channel them into areas where they can get a fill on that. And then we border all the stuff they would normally eat that we don't want them to. We border that with the society garlics and onions or other garlic plants that are uh, rosemaries and stuff like that. Almost create a, a, a smell hedge. And then they leave before they even recognize there's anything else there because they're full on the clover that they wanted. So that's another route. And then there's a lot of organic pesticides. I mean, there's a couple pesticide companies that we work with here. They do normal traditional stuff, but then we worked with them specifically to get some organic, very natural, natural products that smell like root beer that they can actually spray around our client properties and get that taken care of. And 
that's all related to insects. You had mentioned rabbits. What about cats? Cats, you know, the, the ones that leave the Lincoln logs behind. <laughs> right. That, that, that's a, that has a significant issue. We don't, we don't like building with those or planting with those. And right? you don't want that to be in an area that you, you come back and you're cultivating. Under, they've been using it a while. And I mean, I, I excavate. I don't want that composting and, and no. mixing with my soil. No, we don't want that around them at all. I mean, when it comes to food safety laws, they, won't, they don't let us harvest within five feet of any scat that we've found, especially from cats. Ooh, so I, that's, I need that's to change a, that standard. I, I was probably more on like the shovel scoop size, five feet. <laughs> well, that's that's food safety laws. It's five feet and it's like ninety days of waiting. <laughs> so so it's a devastating thing. And I mean, it's one of the weird laws that's out there. It's kind of like they have it so they can enforce it if they need to. But it's one like you know, if a coyote wanders through a field and poops, you know, we're not gonna. They don't all of a sudden not harvest quarantine that. Quarantine that. <laughs> they don't quarantine that area because it's not usually found. But if it's found, they got to address it, and that's one of the kind of the things, especially when we're doing inner city stuff. It's like we have to do raised beds, so that's one of the other ways, and be able to to mess with that and make sure that we're not dealing with with uh, cats or dogs or things like that. It's how we actually create the solidscapes or raised beds, or how we angle them, or how we create buffer spaces, and how we design that into the landscape, just to ensure that if there is a problem, it's not a problem for our food. And uh, it, it's very intentional. It was more, there was more detail to it that I didn't even realize we needed to accommodate when we first started this, you know, <laughs> what, 18 years ago, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. And it's funny that you mentioned like that scat. Well, there's other animals like horses and cows where it's like gold for your garden. <laughs> right. But even with that, I mean, there's different rules about that depending on the age of that manure. It, it is how long you can really it needs to be in place before you can really use it and use that space and effectively grow and it's a 90 day time frame with that as well and that's one of the things especially if it starts out fresh if you can have it almost certified as it's been composted well enough well then you can get into more of a 30 day timeline i think it's western organics you know what? i'm gonna avoid that we'll talk about it off air because I'm, I'm side trailing um so that brings up another question i'm going to uh, interject before we get to, to water supply. What kind of water demand are we creating with this? But w how are you supplementing your soil? This type of turnover, you're probably going through a lot of potted soil bags. Or does this create enough composting done right? You can compost enough to keep up with your replenishing the nutrients in your soil. You got it. That's the way we do it. We want to try to get a composting site on site for everything that we do. And then also bring in any other little scraps from the kitchen and stuff and be able to create a very active living compost pile. When you and get compost right, you can get it all to break down in 16 days. So it doesn't have to take months and months like people think. We water our compost pile just like we do a lot of the plants. And we set them up in such a way so that we're layering them right so that they can all break down on their own. And it's not something I have to be out there and be churning it like every single day in order for it to break down correctly. So you're exactly right. We do a lot of on-site composting stuff. We do a lot of compost teas as to our, you know, our nutrient densities so we can, get, we can do foliar feeding and we'll... You know, we teach people how to blend their own teas. And I mean, it's like brewing beer, you know, in a, you can do it for 36 bucks and you can make your own, your own brew that'll, in a five gallon bucket that it will work, you know, for a good half acre of, of plantings and the most nutrient dense stuff you can get and things will grow right well for you. Adding this to my agriscape plan. Beer. <laughs> <laughs> One crop I hadn't thought about coming out of my agriscape. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And beer works better in the garden than it usually does at the dinner table. That's been my experience with it. <laughs> now, 
what kind of water demand does all of this create? You had mentioned earlier the example of the, the gal that had a quarter acre that she turned into an agriscape. Right. What kind of water consumption are we creating on that? Well, we always want to be less water consumption than your neighbor, but there's a way we do that. I mean, it's going to be less than grass in most in most instances, even if you're fully dense, you know, and you're, you're totally loaded up, you're going to be less than grass, especially the, you know, your, your rye, your traditional rye. You're going to be less than that. And what we integrate is we'll integrate gray water sourcing. So in the state of Arizona, you got a general use permit that allows you to use and tap into gray water, you know, your, your laundry water, and you can subsurface that. You know, as long as it's not sprayed, it's okay kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of other things that we like to tap into, rainwater harvesting. So like that gal, her quarter acre... A lot of rainwater harvesting, rain barrels that we put all around that property that she cultivated and just collected all that water from that. And she used it with just a hose or we integrated it into her you know, little pump and it can go into her irrigation system. So it's a lot of that. I've got a shower, I guess a shower, a tub, and two sinks that we tap into at my house from our upstairs. There's enough water that flows through that for 10,000 plant units a day, just regular use with my family. And a plant unit would be like a one-quart container pot, so a nice, uh, you know, a nice head of lettuce. So I've got enough water just coming from my normal usage that I could integrate right into my landscape to help it water. And I use a lot less water than my neighbors do, but you wouldn't know it by all the bananas and and, and uh, you know mangoes and other things that were growing off of that water. So by design, it's a complete agriscape system. It takes yeah. everything. Uh, you're using less water. You're making money off of it. Does it limit itself to plants? I mean, if we're agriscaping, part big part of agriculture in Arizona is cattle, mm-hmm. uh, sheep, goats, uh, and and even there's a lot of things that those animals bring that aren't necessarily meat products. Soaps. Uh, we we made our own goat soap. We have our own goat milk. I mean, it's something we just milk right in the backyard and turn it into product in the kitchen. Is agriscaping in your designs limited to plants? Oh, no. So productive pets is what you're describing. We like to call them productive pets. And we call them productive pets for a main reason because integrating productive pets into an HOA environment is a little tricky, but totally doable. A lot of cities, I know Gilbert just opened up their range. We've been working with the city for six years in, uh, in the town of Gilbert that they expanded the opportunity for raising chickens. You know, we had to call them ornamental jungle fowl for quite a while. <laughs> and uh, we had to focus on breeds that did not look like your traditional chicken. You know, we had to focus on breeds that, you know, like silkies or, or sultans and, you know, ones that look like cockatoos like my neighbor had. Polish. Yeah, the Polish, you know, with the crazy poofs on the top of their head, right? You know, so we had to do that for a number of years before regulations started not having a prejudice against productive pets. And now we're starting to weed out a lot of the prejudice jargon in a lot of the code. And for all you city people out there, it's like, oh, you know you've got prejudice jargon in your code. Start weeding it out. You know, make it more about smells and sounds, not about what kind of animal someone has. But that's the kind of thing we love to integrate that into the designs. And that becomes part of the composting process as well. You know, chickens are a big part of our composting system. Guinea pigs are also part of our composting system because they can compost our citrus. And I'd rather have that than a rat. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Guinea pigs? Guinea pigs. Yeah, guinea, guinea pigs. I got to write that down. Same as a rat in terms of what they're willing to eat. And uh, they're about the only animal that we found that'll do that. And they pelletize things right well, you know, for the garden. You know, the pendulum swings, you'd mentioned the verbiage and HOAs that limit it. And everything had gotten so structured there at a point. And I think people are kind of swinging back that they need to look at things in a practical application. Yeah. You know, solar panels for how long you couldn't put on HOAs in Arizona. And finally, the 
they looked at that and said, this is ridiculous. Why are we wasting all the sun and, and, and restricting ourselves? And you know, you've got your agriscaping coming back in a lot of these HOAs that, yep. you know, there's a, there's a practical aspect of life that you, know, you can't put into regulations on your CCNRs and HOAs and you know, ba- basic lifestyles that is what got us through the first 6,000 years of our existence. <laughs> right. It's As- focusing on what we're for rather than what we're against. It's like we can protect people's, you know, sacred spaces and the sounds, you know, and the smells. But when it comes down to it, it's like really respecting people and what they want to do with their own life. I mean, it's allowing them to choose. And I think that's a big part of it. Justin Rohner, the concept's agriscaping. The company's agriscaping. Elegant, edible, landscape. All right, a couple questions that have come in, Justin. We'll get to them briefly. But uh, taking this concept to a street, now you're creating an entire neighborhood of agriscaping and creating your own farmer's market. I mean, the, the ideas and possibilities just continue to snowball. But yeah. before we talk about those, because I'm sure the, the look in your eye, you're going to have a few examples of, of where and how that's already taking place. But uh, as soon as we hit the break, you grew on top of uh, – goats chickens and you brought in aquaponics and fish you're uh, what what did you call fish to get away with it you, well you we called chickens fish. your well you called chickens your aqua your, your jungle uh, ornamental jungle fowl jungle, yeah, <laughs> ornamental jungle, jungle. when you're fishing tilapia did you have a creative name you needed to pull off to get those snuck into hoas no we really didn't need <laughs> to do that i mean because we do it in fish tanks you know we'll do them in a pond you know it's it, i mean koi is just a really elegant carp you know i mean when it all comes down to it and and you can eat that too if you'd really like but you know for 300 dollars for a fish you probably wouldn't do that but you know if you're putting you know, the, the West Nile um, tilapia, it's actually a pretty fish. If you've ever actually seen it, it's a pretty fish. It's got cool tiger striping on the sides and blue kind of gill look to it. It's a pretty fish when the water's clear enough to see it. But most ponds and lakes, you know, they're not clear enough to see it. So we like integrating into your ponds, you know, doing the fish right inside of that, doing cage rays. So you can even cage raise them in there. It makes it a lot easier on the harvesting side. I'll just say that. Or you just do traps. You know, I mean, if it's your own stuff, you can trap your own stuff. You can't you can't go out into the river and trap trout with a cage, but you certainly can do it in your own backyard. Now, I'm going to throw you may, maybe I don't know. You had an answer for everything <laughs> I've had so far. I may throw you a loophole being uh, a descendant of the Cajuns. You ever done anything with crawfish? Well, with the freshwater prawn. So the freshwater prawn, we can work we can work with the freshwater prawn, which is more on the flavor p- profile of a soft shrimp. But with the crawfish, we haven't done much with the crawfish. I mean, with we've got some students in Louisiana that are definitely into the crawfish, and so they're trying to figure out how to weigh, how, ways how to integrate that stuff. Those things are garbage eaters. I mean, that, that water's got to be like mucky dirt kind of look in order for them to really thrive. Well, you know, those all those clear rim lakes up in Arizona on the rim are full of crawfish. That's very That's true. freshwater, clear crawfish. Yeah, down at the bottom. Up. I remember harvesting those when I was a kid up at uh, just right up on top of the rim. So, all right. So... There's really no limit that we've hit here. Um, have, have you ever run into the pond gnome in these? Because he went from designing these ponds to these uh, like living pond, like decorative ponds, like living ponds you could swim in. Yeah, and, um, the recreational pond. So I yeah. know Paul. Paul's a great guy. We work with him a lot. You know, we've got a project. Paul and Barbie. <laughs> yes, Paul and Barbie. And we're working on a three-pond system right now that's just finishing out. I mean, it's uh, he's a great guy, and he's got some great, great product that he can create because they look so natural, and we grow a lot of food. 
in those ponds when we do them that way. Now, what do you mean in those ponds? Are like you putting like the watermelon seed there so they're like right on the bank and they've constantly got a water source? Or Well, it's a more special type product. I mean, you think about a lotus flower. If you've ever heard of a lotus flower, that's a, that is an edible flower. Taro root, like you can get in Hawaii or some of the Polynesian islands. You know, we grow that. Uh, ginger or uh, turmeric. Um, Herbamanza, you know, there's miner's lettuce. There's some other Chinese types of lettuce that grow really good in those aquaponic kind of scenarios and in those ponds. And so we do it on the on the periphery, and it becomes part of the filtration system for your actual your living your living pool in a sense, and it helps clarify it. So Paul's really good at making sure he uses plant life to then filter and create that biofalls and a biofiltration system. And we then add to that by making it even better by actually planting edible plants in it. So we're able to then recycle and even pull that stuff out and then regrow new things. And, I mean, you can even do sweet potatoes, actually, in some of those on the periphery, on the, on the, on the edges. And when we design them with Paul, we make sure that we design them in such a way that we got stepped landscape that some get a little bit of water, some get a lot of water, and we're growing the stuff in those spaces to accommodate it. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I have been uh, very much enjoyed this hour. Quickly addressing the question of, of taking this to a neighborhood concept, like mm-hmm. our texter earlier, and you know, if your landscape is maxed out, but you've got a neighbor that's been interested, you can, you know, you 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 multiply this four or five homes on the same street, and I'll do the melons, you do the cantaloupe, you right. do the oranges, I'll do the lemons. Yep, that's a great way. We've had a number of little communities. We've got a little uh, a subdivision that's got like twelve houses in it, and they're all kind of teaming together to create their own little their own little co-op. You know, with the agriscapes and going on in that. But we also have commercial developments. I mean, there's a the North Glen. So the village at North Glen right here in Phoenix, they're selling houses. There's about 40 houses in there. And we're agriscaping all the common areas. And so around the pool area, there's mangoes and guavas and apples and bananas that are all growing around the pool area. And so the way the HOA works there, too, it all integrates so that there's an allowance for people to go and pick stuff and, and have their own herbs right there in their front yard. And it's all integrated in. I mean, it's it's cool. Kids swimming, need a snack. You don't have to worry <laughs> right. about them not drying off, walking wet through your house to grab something out of the fridge is, hey, kid, grab a mango. Yeah, there you go. There's one right there. You go <laughs> grab that. There's an apple right there. Go, yeah, There's a guava. You know, go grab that. Now, do you have a website people can go look more and, and study into this? Easy one is agriscaping.com. Just go to agriscaping.com. Whether you're do-it-yourself or you want it done for you, we've got some resources there to help you out. You can you know, go to the Get Started, and it'll give you some resources there to, to find somebody who can come out and help you out, align things, see what's possible. And to, to get the professionals to do it for you or the do-it-yourself classes that you can jump right in online and start getting trained and get aligned with a, a local educator that can come help you out. Did you create this T-shirt, Kale Yeah? Kale Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a fun one. We, we've had some fun. There's, there's a lot more coming. I'll just say that. Okay. We've got a, a few guys on our team that uh, love coming up with new puns that are a little on the edgy side. All right. Justin Rahner, Agriscaping, agriscaping.com, Elegant Edible Landscape. Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning. Stay tuned. We're going into the 9 o'clock hour, the open line hour. We have special guests from the city of Phoenix coming in talking about recycling. And although they are from the city of Phoenix, recycling applies to anybody that lives in the great state of Arizona. We've got some incredible resources from people who've been doing it a really long time. That's all right here at Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for 30 years.